Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. During today's program, we continue our series, Christmas Conversations, an interview series with Dr. John Newfeld. And today we'll hear from Pastor Steve Croker on the topic of historicity. There's much to learn, so let's begin. Hi, Dr. John Newfeld here, and we're having Christmas Conversations, and it's a delight today to be interviewing uh, Pastor Steve Croker. And Pastor Steve, what a delight it is to have you here at Back to the Bible Canada. So so welcome to our studios. Good to have you. Thank you. It's, yeah, it's a joy. I'd like to know from you right at the outset something about your own story. How'd you come to know the Lord? Well, I grew up in a Christian family with uh, loving Christian parents, and yet probably around the age of 14 really came to actually understand the gospel for the first time and, and repented of my sins, came to know Christ, was baptized. So that was sort of the, the turning point, but blessed by Christian family, friends, church, that, so growing up around that. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I remember you as a young man because I was pastoring the church where you were attending. Yeah, you so, were my pastor. Yes, yes. I was. And uh, so it's just a joy to see what God has done in your life. Uh, tell a little bit about your own story about how you came to the conclusion that God called you to ministry. Well, growing up in the church then, um, in those teenage years, I, I just felt a strong call toward ministry. And it was um, not to be flattery uh, here, but the preaching of yourself and others in the church I grew up in, just sensing a call of God saying, that's what I want you to do with your life. And and so pursued that through biblical education and, and now ministry and I served the last seven years at Tawasin Alliance Church and, yeah. and, and lead pastor in that role. Well, Pastor Steve, I got to say, I was the delight to have you here because I know that I've been a part of your life, and I need to say that I think you're one of the finest pastors that I know. So uh, welcome here again, and uh, we're talking about our Christmas conversations about the historicity of the Bible story regarding Christmas. So Pastor Steve, let me start with this. Um, We've all read, or some of us have read, The Da Vinci Code. Many have seen the movie. Every single Christmas, it seems like some television station will give you something about alternative theories to the birth of Jesus, and uh, happens so regularly. Um, What do you make of the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, or the Gospel of Thomas, or I think there's even a Gospel of Judas out there, and they're all plying for this idea that, you know, this is as legitimate as what you read in the Bible. How do you respond to that? Well, I think just because something has the name gospel, it doesn't mean they're all of equal historical worth. Um, I think we have to start with what are the gospels that we have in the Bible and what do they claim for themselves? And they claim for themselves to be historically reliable uh, biographies uh, based on eyewitness testimony, carefully researched out. And and archaeology and, and historical research has proven them to be quite reliable Scholars of all stripes will say that the Gospels are, are very reliable, uh, and, and because they're written so early, within a lifetime of the life of Christ, uh, while eyewitnesses are still around, could easily contradict them. They were dispersed widely after they were being written, so they could easily be contradicted. So you start with that, and then you say, well, what are these other these Gnostic Gospels in the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary? The Gospel of Thomas could not possibly be written earlier than the year 170 AD. So we're talking 140, 150 years after the life of Christ, because much of it is actually based on a translation into Syriac, a word for word at parts, which was not written until 170. So we know it cannot possibly be earlier. And so and it's it much likely later than that. And, and, and so late second century. 
And so it's not written by eyewitnesses. It has no relation to Thomas and instead is written to, to sort of borrow the authority um, and reputation of the Gospels in order to teach a divergent view about Jesus Christ. Well, that's very interesting. And that's not only true of the Gospel of Thomas. I think it's true of all of those other so-called uh, Gospels that we have, uh, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and so forth. They're all late. And what we have in our Bible are actually eyewitness accounts. And that's the difference between them. Yeah, absolutely. Gospel of Mary is around the same time. Um, and then, I mean, the Da Vinci Code, too, uh, uh, I don't know how many people actually take the historically seriously, but it uh, sort of abuses and misinterprets some of the things in them as well. So even, even the things they say, for instance, they, they often talk about the Gnostic Gospels make Jesus sound more human as if they were pointing to something earlier. And, but in fact, they don't. They, they actually... They're out of this Gnostic worldview, which says that Jesus was not human, but was a pure spirit. So it actually teaches the very opposite of what some people sometimes claim it does. So people are assuming things in those uh, tracts, which you, you and I haven't met a lot of people that have actually read the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Which has some things which would be quite, quite offensive to people if you actually read it. Uh-huh. They're talking about how Jesus will make Mary a male so that she can inherit the kingdom of God. I see. So, yes, so very sexist kind of language, which is not found in our Gospels at all. When we were having a conversation about this, you had made an analogy, and you'd used the Lord of the Rings as an analogy. I thought that was so striking. I wonder if you'd do that now on the, on the air. Well, I remember, I remember when the Lord of the Rings film came out um, and, and saw someone online who was complaining, uh, I think sincerely, having seen Lord of the Rings, uh, saying, you know, it was a pretty good film, except uh, Tolkien seemed to really borrow a lot of his material from the Harry Potter books. I guess this person naively didn't know their history that, that Tolkien had written uh, The Lord of the Rings in the 50s and, and here uh, Harry Potter is written in the 90s uh, and that J.K. Rowling grew up reading books like The Lord of the Rings and The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, and so if you know anything about history, you, f- you find that comment very amusing, but right. for this person who didn't know. So sometimes we hear about the Gnostic Gospels, and there's some similarities. They talk about Jesus. They have some sayings of Jesus, and, and maybe one of them borrowed from the other. What's the original? But when you actually know a little bit about a history, which came first, who borrowed from whom, it becomes actually quite amusing to think that the biblical Gospels borrowed from the Gospel of Thomas. Right. Uh, who came first, and who borrowed from whom? So, so in fact, we should proudly proclaim our Bible as giving us the real and genuine story of Jesus. Absolutely. And in fact, what you sometimes see on these, like you mentioned, the, you know, there'll be shows or books that come out, is that scholars will come with a very heavy skepticism, um, bias against the biblical gospels, and then come up with the most generous and unbelievable assessments of some other ancient literature, which we have very little... Uh, data for, very little, very few copies of, or very late. And there's this double standard. And I think you just, what you want scholarship to be is fair, fair to the text. And when you actually are fair with the biblical gospels, they are remarkably well-preserved when you compare them to ancient biographies of Alexander the Great or other sources, which we accept as fact and true. We have these amazing testimonies written in, within a lifetime, uh, preserved in a remarkable fashion for us. And so that we can trust them as reliable, and we should approach them assuming them to be historically reliable because they've proven themselves to be in so many ways that if there is a question on some portion or reference, I, I believe they get the benefit of the doubt. There you go. Yeah, very well said. 
Now, we had also, in preparation for this, talked about a number of things that that I think our listeners would be very interested in hearing. So let's start with some of the basic things that people often question the Christmas story about. Let's talk about the virgin birth. You know, there are all sorts of accounts of virgin births in mythology, and the test is often given that this is just a Greek mythological restatement of the birth of Jesus. So can you talk about that? Well, I think that's often really overstated, the similarities, that is. Uh, for instance, in Greek mythology, some of these so-called virgin births really involve a, a divine being coming down to earth and raping an innocent woman, and from that produces this half-god, half-man, uh, pretty immoral, fallen, powerful creature. I don't really see a, a similarity between that and Mary, this faithful servant of God, there's no sexual event there, but being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit to, to be conceived with the promised Messiah, it's very different than these corrupt gods raping women. And the similarities just aren't there. Um, sometimes people will say that uh, Alexander the Great had a virgin birth, and, and yet those uh, traditions are very, very late. The earliest biographies say nothing about it. In fact, centuries after the life of Christ. So again, if somebody borrowed from someone, it seems far more likely that the myths about Alexander the Great borrowed from the Christian story than the other way around. And See, even, that's very interesting yeah. because we've been taught the exact opposite. I, I really appreciate you setting the record straight on these matters because I think people do question the virgin birth. Now, if I can very briefly bring another issue before you. Not long ago, I heard a conversation uh, in which an individual had said, well, you know, of the four gospel accounts, only two of them mention the virgin birth. Um, and so the idea being is the other two actually didn't actually believe in the virgin birth. Well, how would you respond to that, Pastor Steve? Well, I think in the gospel we have four different pictures of Jesus, and, and, and I don't think we require every uh, account to tell us everything. So how many times does it have to be mentioned for us to believe it? And, and in addition, I, I think that the other Gospels have nothing to say that would deny the virgin birth either. And so I think we have more than enough clear evidence to, to accept it and believe it as, as helpful and factual. Thank you, Pastor Steve. We'll have more when we come back after the break. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. Well, at Back to the Bible Canada, we believe the Bible not only gives us power to defeat sin, but that it alone has the words of life for all people. We want to help you grow closer to God through His Word by offering you a great 30-day devotional resource called Quiet Spaces, written by Dr. John Newfeld, And we want to send it to you as our gift. Filled with rich biblical insights, each day's reflection focuses on a unique theme centering on our life in Christ and His Word. A variety of practical faith and life issues are discussed to guide and encourage you in your daily walk. So don't miss out on this exclusive offer today. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or send us an email at info at backtothebible.ca to receive your free Quiet Spaces devotional. Now, let's go Back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. (music) 
Well, we're back after the break with Pastor Steve Croker, and we're having this marvelous conversation regarding the historicity of the Bible accounts about the Christmas story. Well, when we ended, we talked about the virgin birth, Pastor uh, Steve, but we also took note of the fact that only two of the gospel accounts mention it. But one of the things that we were talking about in the break is that, in fact, Mark, who doesn't mention it, doesn't have a birth narrative at all. So for using that as a way of reasoning our way through, I guess we'd say Mark didn't even think Jesus was born. (laughs) So as a matter of fact, all of those accounts that mention the birth of Jesus actually mention the virgin birth. And and then John, who seemed to have assumed that his readers have read the other three gospels, and so he seemed to intentionally write a different gospel, he provides the account that most portrays Christ and his divine nature. Yes, so in some ways, it would be the strongest account of the virgin birth, though it doesn't specifically mention the events. Well said. Well said. Now, we're going to talk about some other events that sometimes skeptics question regarding the Christmas story. And one of those is the slaughter of the innocents that Herod does. So the, the, the line goes this way. Um, there's nothing in history that corroborates the Bible story of Herod killing innocent children in Bethlehem. How do you respond to that? Uh, Two ways. One is we have to look at what we do know about Herod and what we learn from other sources about what kind of man was he, what kind of things was he doing, and does that fit, does this event fit his character? And the answer is clearly yes, especially at the end of his life, and we're talking about the events of Jesus happening a year or two before his death. He actually likely became quite mentally unstable and was a paranoid, vicious, and violent man, killed his own wife and two of his sons because he, he thought they were traitors that were trying to take his throne. And there's many other stories recorded in history of some of the vicious things he did. He proved to be a paranoid and violent man that at any hint uh, that someone was a usurper, there was immediate vicious uh, actions. So this event actually seems to fit quite well with the picture we have of the man in history in those final years. So it fits with his personality well. Uh, we do know that Augustus Caesar had said that it's better to be his pig than his son, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, he had a reputation that was served oh, yeah. him well. So the story fits well fits with well. what he's like. The other thing to think about is the size of Bethlehem. Um, because would an event of this nature be recorded in history? The, the, the town of Bethlehem, some would estimate, was as small as 300 people at this time. And we're talking about male children under the age of two. Some, some scholars have said we're, we're talking about maybe a dozen kids. Now, that's horribly tragic for those families, but that may not be the type of event that does get recorded in, in an event of history. It may be nothing compared to some of the events that, that Herod did during those times. It politically had no significance. It, it, so you could see how history doesn't feel the need to record such a small thing as the slaughter of six to 12 boys. Uh, in light of the larger geopolitical issues, and yet it fits exactly with the type of thing that he would have done. Yeah, and we might look at it in today's terms. I mean, there are things that affect believers around the world um, and that are not recorded in the major presses at all. Uh, So it would not be unusual at all to have something mentioned uh, that doesn't get mentioned in the wider, let's say, press of the Greco-Roman world. So that seems to fit very well with the kind of narrative that we have. We have a madman who goes out and kills boys because he's afraid of a usurper, which fits perfectly with what we know about him. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else that we know about Herod that kind of fits that well or 
Uh, we're pretty well exhausted on that subject, are we? Yeah. Okay, let's move on because there are a couple of other accounts that we hear about. Um, for some time, individuals said that Quirinius, who is the governor of Syria, uh, and the book of Luke states that. I think every school child has memorized that passage. Uh, but they have questioned whether or not that was in fact the case. What they've done is scholars have pieced together the, the records of who was governor of Syria. And there are some gaps in it, and they're using multiple sources. But they would say that Quirinius didn't become governor of Syria till the year 6 AD, 6 to 9. And, you know, Herod died in the year 4 BC, and we're very certain about that date because of, of historically um, how so it 10 falls. years approximately. So, what, you know, it doesn't li- line up. Luke's wrong on this account in Luke 2 2. Um, so, but there's a few different ways of understanding it. One possibility is we know that Quirinius was. Uh, involved in some military campaigns ruling in Syria in the 10 years prior to when he, that those, the 86. And so during that time, he was involved in uh, representative work in that area, ruling and leading. And the term governor can be a loose term. So it's, it seems possible, especially given how frequent joint rulership was in that era, exactly. that in a functional sense, he was functioning as governor of that region though later in, in records, he doesn't officially take that capacity to later. But we have to recognize, too, that the, the accounts are – there's gaps in them, too. And so I don't think it's a deal breaker. And, and when you see how often Luke is proven right, how historically reliable he is, if there's a, a question, I think sometimes the answer is to wait and see. And, and perhaps uh, archaeology or in time – when more evidence comes to light, which has happened in the past, Luke will be proven reliable once again. So this is fascinating to me because everything that we have in the biblical accounts, uh, the people that are mentioned, Augustus Caesar, Quirinius was governor, uh, all of those people that are mentioned, Herod's uh, tyrannical reign, we find out that these are in fact real historical characters and that the setting of the account of Christmas happens in real history and not in a made-up story. Absolutely. Even things like when the gospel writers are describing events that happen, they always get it right as far as the direction, the town locations, going from here to there. This is the language of eyewitnesses who have been there. They've walked those streets. They've talked to the people there. There's details in them that are so vivid, you you know they came from someone who saw it with their own eyes. And Luke tells us exactly that, that he went around interviewing eyewitnesses, carefully researching these things out so that we would have great certainty about these events. And as you read these stories, they come with that level of detail and and precision that only would come from someone who actually saw it for themselves and remember it carefully. Let's talk about the story of the Magi for a moment. Sure. Um, You know, that story also has been questioned. So um, we do know that most likely... Uh, the Magi would have arrived sometime after the shepherds and the angels had all disappeared. What do we know about the, the Magi and who they would have been? Uh, what kind of a country would they have come from, so forth? Well, probably from somewhere like Persia uh, and probably some sort of combination of priests and astrologers, uh, scholars, and not kings. That, that would be a, a misunderstanding. Uh, so kind of combining their astronomical um, observations with astrological speculation and maybe a priestly function in their country and, and played a, probably a prominent role in their land. Um, you know, noticing that there's three gifts, people have often said, well, there must have been three, but we, we don't know that. That's an assumption. There could have been quite a few. And 
So we have our Christmas stories with the three wise men, but likely wealthy, influential men like that would have traveled with quite an entourage, especially this quite a journey. Uh, would have taken a couple months, and they would have come with probably likely a, a whole group of them, uh, helpers, servants, uh, employees, those types of things as well. Um, but what's so remarkable the story is, is that Matthew seems to be intentionally contrasting these pagan, Gentile astrologers, which was something that was really forbidden for, for the people of God, and they show us the right behavior. Meanwhile, King Herod, who's sitting on David's throne, though he's not the rightful heir, shows us exactly the wrong behavior. And it immediately sets this tone for Matthew's gospel that Herod is not the king we're waiting for. And in fact, if anyone is demonstrating the right response to the birth of the Messiah, of all people, it's these pagan astrologers from Persia. And it sets the tone for not everything is what it seems and that this Messiah is going to turn things around and there's going to be some unexpected uh, responses. Well, so we're already getting into the drama of Christmas because there is a huge drama that just underlies this entire story. Now, the Magi strike me as fascinating because their history might go back to the magicians in Babylon, and it might be that, let's say, Daniel and the Jewish influence had left an expectation of the Messiah. And uh, so there are a lot of possibilities about the story. But again, the same kind of thing that you gave us when we talked about Herod, it rings true from the background and what we know from these people. It fits. It, it all fits well. Yeah, and, and even the star, stars often in pagan ancient worldview indicated the rise and fall of rulers. So hearing of a star, you could see why Herod would be quite frightened and the Magi would be quite excited. Wow. Wow. So it fits again with the whole worldview and thinking of those individuals. Anything else that you can think of even now as we're talking about the Christmas story that people may question or or not understand? Well, I think I would just remind folks that though there's different views and sometimes you hear different things about what can we really trust the scriptures, they are remarkably reliable. And even in the places where there's a little bit of uncertainty, they deserve the benefit of the doubt to give us a little more time and perhaps some other evidence will prove them to be true, as has happened in the past. I think we can read these accounts as the definitive, most reliable, historically accurate account of what happened. And appealing to some, some mythological story from the second or third century is absolutely nonsense when you have eyewitnesses telling us this is what happened. Uh, Pastor Steve Croker, what a fascinating conversation we've had. Thank you for joining us here at Back to the Bible Canada, and we'll look forward to it in the future hearing from you again. Well, God thanks for you. having me. Yeah, thank you. What's the greatest story ever told? Ask that question in the secular world, and you might come up with a number of answers. Someone might say Charlotte's Web or another, The Tale of Two Cities. It all depends on your perspective. But ask a believer, and I think the overwhelming answer will be the story of Jesus Christ coming to this earth to save lost sinners. This, the gospel story, is the story that's so desperately needed today. And how we respond to it makes the difference between life and death. The truth, though, today, in our very own country, this great story may have become the greatest story rarely told. That's why Back to the Bible Canada is so committed to changing this truth to make it possible for more Canadians, young and old, from all walks of life to hear the truths of the Bible. So today, we invite you to share a dream, a dream that one day spiritual revival will once more sweep across our land as people are confronted with God's story of redemption. 
As a ministry, we commit to continuing this great work, but this is a critical time of year and we need your support. Can you help us reach our year-end goal with a gift of any amount today, whether it's $50, $100, or $1,000? Your individual gift makes a profound difference. To add your support, call us today at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425 or online at backtothebible.ca.